Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched A Double Bill, the classic 1922 vampire movie Nosferatu, directed by F.W. Murnau, and The Shadow of the Vampire by E. Elias Marriage, released in 2000. Loosely adapted from the novel Dracula, Nosferatu is a silent, expressionist horror film that influenced vampire movies for decades to come. Meanwhile, Shadow of the Vampire is a historical drama about the making of Nosferatu, satirizing the film industry by positing that Nosferatu star Max Schreck was secretly a vampire in real life. So I'm very excited to talk about these two movies, primarily Nosferatu, which we will be spending the bulk of the episode on because it's like a classic. But I love Dracula and love horror movies and love vampires. So this is kind of the ultimate. It is certainly not scary by modern standards, but it's immensely influential and really interesting to talk about and has a fascinating backstory. So I wrote a review like five years ago of a series that was playing at the Metrograph Cinema in New York that they were doing on like gothic films. And this was amongst them, along with the remake from the, I want to say the 70s, it may have been the early 80s that Werner Herzog directed, starring Isabella Johnny, and I can't remember what male actors. Klaus Kinski. I, yes. I've not seen that one, but the main thing I recall is he had like 2,000 rats or something, because he was like, the one thing Nosferatu needs is more rats. (laughs) I mean, that's the one we probably should have double-billed with Nosferatu, (laughs) since it is an actual remake. I don't remember it very well. It looks gorgeous. I remember finding it quite boring and kind of sexist. Although Kinski is quite terrifying in it, as I think he was in real life as well. But it was a really interesting review assignment because I was watching like all of these classics and like more recent stuff and seeing there were a lot of vampire movies. So like how that sort of trope has evolved over time, including like the Hollywood Dracula movies, of course, we haven't ever covered the like classic 30s Dracula, but we have done Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, with Gary Oldman, which I was thinking about a lot while watching this. When I watched this at the time, I was like, oh, that's really good and like entertaining, but I wasn't completely like blown away by it. And rewatching it this time, it was so mesmerizing. And I do think part of that is that I was watching a pretty bad transfer the first time I watched it. It was just whatever was available on Amazon, I think. I watched the restoration this time, which was done in 2006, and it is available from Kino Lorber, who sent me a screener. So thank you to Kino Lorber. And it just looks unbelievably gorgeous and like pristine. Obviously, this went through kind of a tormented history, which we'll get into in terms of like how it was preserved. So it's not like every frame looks perfect. There are definitely imperfections, but it just looks so amazing. And I do think that made a difference in terms of how I was receiving it. But also, I've just seen a lot more old movies in the past five years. And watching it this time, I just was like, this is a perfect film. And the fact that it's 100 years old, as of basically this recording. Yeah, this is the birthday is episode, which I should me. have mentioned up top. We are doing Nosferatu because it premiered officially on March 4th, 1922. And I mentioned this at the end of last week's episode when we were kind of teasing this one, but of course, in many ways, this film feels very old. Like, it's, you know, it's 100 years old. But in other ways, it doesn't. Like, it's a full narrative using tropes that obviously have survived since then. And um, part of the magic of it, I think, is that sense of time travel. And um, I was... In a sort of different way, I was watching the 
Charlie Chaplin movie, The Kid, last night. And that is, that was from 1921. And that is preserved to like a surreal degree of perfection because I assume Chaplin had control of his own material. Like he owned all of his own movies. And so I think he had, like he owned all the negatives. And also, yeah, they just would have had like millions of copies. (laughs) Yeah. And it's genuinely astounding. Like the close-ups of people, you're just like, well, that's just a person. Like I could walk outside (laughs) and like see that person. And that was a little bit different from this one, but there is something just kind of like dissonant in your brain when you're watching these really old movies, but in a like thrilling way, or at least that's how I feel. Yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds like homework to say this, but like you do need to watch a few really old silent films to kind of calibrate your brain to get it. But once you've done that, it's like, it's not inaccessible. These movies, the ones that survive to this day, the majority of them are like big entertainment films. (laughs) This is a horror movie about like a vampire with sex metaphors and you know it's dracula it's not it's not like obscure material i think the main kind of barrier for entry or at least culture shock is just the acting style is extremely different in silent films than we're kind of we're used to seeing but that's just part of the charm yeah and it was interesting to me also to watch this and then to watch the kid which obviously is not like completely naturalistic but is much more naturalistic than this because the story of the kid is basically like, you know, the tramp chaplain signature role, like raising a four year old child in poverty, and they're supposed to be acting like kind of normal people and basically are, again, with a sort of like veneer of silent film acting. Whereas this movie is so heightened because it's a German expressionist film, and we can sort of explain what that means, but it completely fits the aesthetic of what the movie is trying to do that what the actors are doing feels kind of bigger. But I also felt I was, you know, thinking about it watching this time, like obviously the acting is heightened, but it doesn't feel like so over heightened to me that it was really standing out that much. Like you definitely do watch some silent movies and they're like really making faces, you know? (laughs) And that wasn't going on so much here. It feels again, just like really carefully calibrated to what the movie is trying to do. And I think that speaks to Murnau's like incredible obsession to detail. Like he had storyboarded this whole thing out really carefully and like knew exactly what he wanted. And I think the actors are kind of acting in like the paintings that he's constructed for them in a way. Yeah. Although kind of one of the interesting things about this movie is it sort of very much goes against the grain of the way that we often talk about movies through kind of an auteur lens where it's like the director is in charge because we have cited Murnau several times here, but it was really very much a collaboration with his co-producer, who's the guy who actually kind of came up with the project in the first place, Albin Grau, who was an artist and also was obsessed with the occult. He was like a full-time occult hobbyist. We will talk about him in a minute, but um, before we kind of get into Murnau and Grau, we should talk a bit about just German expressionism and expressionism in general, which I think, I guess like the simple way to explain it is you're making art that is not literally depicting something. It's more about expressing feeling and vibes. It's all about the vibes. And German expressionist film was kind of developing in the World War One and post-World War One era. So this was a point where Germany was, by political necessity, really isolated. The government was blocking international films from coming into the country. There was also an extremely vibrant artistic scene, particularly in Berlin. And there was a big demand for 
Germany to be making its own movies. So you had all of these like Berlin art freaks who were developing their own form of cinema kind of somewhat cloistered away from the cinema that was being made in France, in particular in America. So that's where you get German expressionism. Some kind of classic examples would obviously be this and uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Faust, which was also by Murnau and is a great movie. Highly recommend Faust if you would like to see um, another weird, gothic, freaky movie. And they've got loads of kind of stylized shadows and visual metaphors and gloominess and uh, the surrealists were very fond of a lot of these films yeah i think i haven't seen caligari since i was a freshman in high school or freshman in college which is now a long time ago i really need to rewatch it but that i think is a really good like if you literally just want to understand like what was going on i mean there are paintings too of course that convey this pretty directly but what I always think about in that movie is that, like, there are these scenes in built sets where, like, the sets, like, the walls are literally kind of, like, diagonal yes. and, like, they don't fit together correctly because it's supposed to reflect, like, the instability or just, like, disorderedness of the character's mind. And the whole, like, visual situation in that movie is completely unrealistic on purpose yeah i mean it looks like a stage set it's very much like you're looking at a stylized stage set with all these sort of curtains and shadows and the makeup is really wild i mean caligari's amazing because you see the guy in that and you're like oh this is the person that 13 year old girls have a crush on in a tim burton movie right it's edward scissorhands (laughs) but it's 1920 and then you look him up and it's like yeah people had precisely the same response to this sort of skeletal eyeliner wearing man in 1921 as people do to that guy now (laughs) yeah whereas this film definitely is still within that category but it's less like literally the shape of the room is going to be (laughs) like a weird you know oblong whatever And it's more about, I think, the feeling. And then, of course, like the one fucking weird dude in the middle. I mean, what this does is it combines the very straightforward and familiar narrative of Dracula with, I guess, the emotional elements of expressionism without being as visually bizarre as something like Caligari. Though... We should say Dracula was like 25 years old at this point. So like it was incredibly popular, but like Dracula to people in 1922 versus now is not the same at all. (laughs) And that was really the book. I'm sure we talked about this when we did Bram Stoker's Dracula, but vampire mythology in a very broad sense that's in Eastern Europe in like a folklore tradition from like a long time ago. I think it would be impossible to pin down the exact origins, but the first full-on vampire book in the way that we think about vampires now is Polidori in the early 1800s. Yeah. And then there's Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu in sort of the like mid-late 1800s. And then and the Dracula. opera Der Vampire, which was in the yeah. 1820s, which is, you know, what it sounds like. <laughs> and then Dracula's 1897, and that even though these earlier things existed and definitely were like read, listened to whatever the Dracula is this just like crazy hit though. I read, I, people may have seen this on Twitter. I read this completely bananas book called the beetle a couple weeks ago, which is about um, a man 
various people actually being haunted by a scary Egyptian man who can turn into a beetle. So it's like a great big. <laughs> Very racist. It also came out in 1897 and was more popular than Dracula for the first 20 years that they were published. I mean, maybe because that book you're describing sounds like it has a lot of action. Whereas when you read Dracula, you have to read like 30 to 40 pages of diaries about traveling through bits of mountain before you reach any vampires. <laughs> yes. When I read Dracula in college, my very esteemed professor was like, don't read the whole thing. Like, just read enough. However much you want, you're going to get the idea. Like, it's fine. So it was a huge hit, but maybe not instantaneously as huge of a hit as like we think. But obviously, by 1922, everybody knew this story. But I think the fact that like the producers of this film tried to get the rights from Bram Stoker's widow, and she was like, absolutely not. I will not give them to you, reflects how this was not a historical thing. This was very much a living yeah. situation. I mean, this, so it was Stoker's really big money spinner as a book, and this was his widow's one source of income. The backstory for this movie is that Albin Grau, who's the producer, he had never made a movie before. He was an established artist. This is a guy who was like obsessed with the occult. And according to him, there is a completely spurious story, which is clearly fake, that during World War I, he met this farmer who told him about like a real vampire he'd encountered. And that kind of provided the inspiration for him wanting to make a vampire movie. And then he met Murnau and hired Murnau and the writer, Henrik Galeen, to make this adaptation of Dracula. And it was it, like, there's a lot of kind of descriptions of this movie are like, oh, they changed the names to disguise the fact that it was Dracula. It's like, there's posters for this movie that just describe it as an adaptation of Dracula. So they changed the names because it was like playing to a German audience and they were changing other parts of it. But like, there is no way you can have any familiarity with Dracula and watch this and not realize that it's just like clearly Dracula, you know? The version I watched had a title card. That said it was an adaptation yeah. <laughs> of Bram Stoker's Dracula. So. so like for Murnau, he had already made several silent films. Um, he made his first feature film in 1919, but like the turnover was very fast in those days. He made more than 20 movies in a decade long career. He died young in 1931 after moving to America. He'd already made Jekyll and Hyde. Um, after Nosferatu, he'd make Faust. And um, like a lot of the people involved in this film, he was a World War I veteran. He'd flown planes during World War One. He crashed eight times. He was then interned as a POW and wrote his first film script while in the prison theatre company as a prisoner of war. So he had a lot going on right now. And then Albin Grau, he was really instrumental in most of the stuff that makes Nosferatu so iconic. Like he did all of the production design. You can look up the concept art that he made for this film and it is extremely kind of expressionist and dark and very cool looking. It's better than the vast majority of modern film posters. And then he gave like extremely detailed notes on what he wanted the script and the film to be like. So like Murnau is the one who was in charge of executing the movie because like he knew how to make a film. He was giving all of the actor direction, blocking the characters and so forth. But spiritually this is very much Grau's baby and then the big difference like between his vision and what actually happened is that for whatever reason they ended up with like 12 missing pages of shooting script when they filmed the movie so Murnau rewrote the ending himself and he's the person who introduced this idea of vampires being killed by sunlight because 
in uh, Dracula and other pieces of kind of older vampire mythology, they're sort of damaged and they, they like the night because they're spooky nocturnal creatures. But this movie kind of sets the, the scene for Buffy style vampire scenes where something like crumbles into dust because they were hit with a sunbeam. But yeah, it was uh, it was this really intriguing collaboration between these different guys. Alban Grau's original plan was that he had set up this production company because he wanted to make three occult themed films because he was like really into the the quest to share the occult, which is kind of explaining a lot of the imagery in this movie. There's sort of some fun little like symbols going on <laughs> in all of the uh, the paperwork that Count Orlock has. But yeah, then their uh, production company went bust, partly because not very many people watched Nosferatu and partly because they were getting sued by Florence Stoker and he sadly could not make his other films. But you can kind of tell he wasn't very business-minded because he was just plowing ahead with his artistic vision to make an illegal copy of Dracula. And he (laughs) succeeded. Yes. Yes, indeed. Let's talk more about the artistic approach to the film. You've alluded to like the concept art production design stuff. I think a lot of what makes the movie so good are the like sets combined with the cinematography. I mean, the only other Murnau film I've seen, I think, is Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which he made once he had moved to America, which is late 20s, so it has to be like right be- not very long before he died in 1931, which is considered one of if not the greatest silent film i mean it's incredible and that movie i think of as very much like a triumph of the camera doing things that you just are like how does the how's the camera even doing this and then you know something that people don't often think about is that once sound comes in the camera actually was really limited because they had to do all this stuff with like sound recording that they didn't really know what they were doing with yet so film kind of actually takes a step backwards in terms of like what's technically possible and sort of artistically right after the silent era ends. And I found watching this really interesting in terms of sort of like this is almost, I guess, seven years earlier. So it's obviously sort of like not as advanced, but you still have this like really developed sense of like aesthetic point of view. The camera's quite static in this movie. There's a lot of shots where it's kind of the actors in a play kind of situation but it also for a film in 1922 was very innovative like it was one of the earliest films to have montage as like a storytelling technique and sort of intercutting between things that are thematically linked but aren't in the same place so like Count Orlock aka Dracula doing something in one place and then it sort of cuts back to the protagonist's wife elsewhere reacting sort of spiritually through the ether. Yeah and I just think the way that he frames people even is like really effective like even when it's not doesn't necessarily strike you as being that flashy he manages to make them all feel quite distinctive and like emotionally real somehow which obviously is also totally down to the performers but given the limitations it's pretty impressive i think and um the cutting does a ton of that work too because you do get the sense that these people are all connected in some way and he does tricks to sort of make orlock the dracula figure seem particularly sort of like supernatural right which involve things like really sort of early rudimentary special effects like fading out that feel really magical when you're watching it because you're like oh wow (laughs) (laughs) they're figuring out how to do it but totally 
make sense within the movie or like there's a scene where the door on the floor of a boat i don't know if there's a term for that i don't know is like opening by itself and they've clearly like stop motioned it up to a certain point and then it opens on its own and you can tell what they're doing but it still has that feeling of like something bad is happening and it's unnerving right and it just felt like there was so much creative thought going into every element of the movie. And even if you could sort of see through the seams as someone watching 100 years later, that was really exciting to me. Yeah. I mean, Orlok is just such an effective figure because... So for those who do not have the plot of Dracula fresh in their mind, the protagonist is a guy named Hutter, who's the kind of Jonathan Harker figure. He's played by Gustav von Wangenheim, who is an established actor and later on a very active communist. And he is playing just like this young, very goofy guy. He's quite comedic in a lot of the earlier scenes. Like he just seems like a doofus. And he has a wife back home played by the actress Greta Schroeder. And so Hutter is sent by his boss to go and like sort out some business with Count Orlok. So he travels to Transylvania from Germany and goes to like Orlok's castle where he after a while has had some like very awkward scary but also really quite comedic to modernize like it's just really funny to see him interacting with Orlok who is just like the world's creepiest man and Hutter just has no survival instincts and is like standing there while his host is talking about how like delicious his blood smells and stuff like the dialogue at least in the translation I watched was very amusingly florid but then kind of after Hutter is sort of like had some real confrontations with Orlok. Orlok flees his castle and then uh, like takes a boat over to where uh, Hutter and his wife live in this like small German town. And that's kind of where you get the the second half of the Dracula narrative where he preys on the locals and eventually preys on Hutter's wife. And it kind of concludes with Orlok being defeated because he's been persuaded to uh, spend the night with Mrs. Hutter and then uh, is exposed to the sunlight of dawn and dies. That's kind of a simplified version of the story. But like you have this kind of ensemble cast of normal people, you know, you've got like Mr. and Mrs. Hutter who are just this like sweet, innocent young couple. And then you've got various locals who are relatively normal. And then you have the sort of professor figure who explains what's up with the vampire. And a lot of those performances are kind of in that zone of somewhat, dorky early silent film pantomime because like pantomime is really what you've got to be doing but then Orlok is like so he's so creepy and he's so weird looking because there are quite a lot of characters in this movie who are wearing silly prosthetic moustaches or whatever and they just look kind of dorky whereas Nosferatu genuinely looks like kind of a freak and there's loads of really fun mythos around the actor Max Schreck who had done plenty of stage acting and film acting and was kind of known for having a bit of a strange sense of humour. There was not really anecdotes about him being mean or monstrous, but it just seems like he was quite strange. Like, you Google him and there's these anecdotes where it's like, oh, he loved to walk in the forest by himself for hours in the dark. And he was a peculiar man and like all this stuff. So it's like kind of eccentric. And he specialised in these sort of very strange, menacing and grotesque characters on stage. And for this movie... He's wearing this great makeup, which, as I said, was kind of masterminded by Albin Grau, the producer and production designer, which is very different from the later fashion for vampire movies, which were all very much shaped by the 1932 
Hollywood black and white Dracula, which is very kind of suave and sexy. This guy is very rodent-like. He's kind of bat-like. He's got a bald head and pointed ears and kind of dark, gloomy eyes and a very skinny face and these amazingly long, taloned fingernails. And they've got him done up in this coat, which... It just looks fantastic because this is a historical drama, like it's set in kind of the 19th century and he is wearing this somewhat historical looking coat, but it's also kind of padded so that he simultaneously looks really narrow and skinny, but also kind of hunched. So it's almost like he's got his like wings folded under his jacket or something. And it's just this really unique silhouette that adds this sense of menace and sort of inhumanness to him that works super well in all those silhouettes and shadows i found i mean obviously i'd seen this before and um i mean the funniest thing about this whole movie is that we have to talk shortly about the fact that this is all just a sex metaphor (laughs) and the fact that the, the guy who's like making everyone just like go out of their minds with horniness is like that guy who is completely hideous yes yes his little rat teeth like it's it's amazing because it's like i don't know who figured out that canines are the sexy teeth but we know that canines are the sexy teeth and the rabbit teeth at the front are not they're not the sexy teeth (laughs) well also they have him biting like the front of people's throats and it's like that's not where you get the blood but in terms of the way he looks i found it really interesting to think about watching it this time because He obviously is sort of representative of this 1920s Berlin interwar aesthetic, right? Not not that everyone was walking around looking like (laughs) this fucking weirdo, but he's like very tall and angular. As you said, he's wearing this coat that's very distinctive. He doesn't look facially anything like the main character from Caligari, but there's a similar kind of thing going on in terms of these like very pale men with these like black outfits that are both starring in these sort of gothic stories. And what's interesting about this one is that the setting is Victorian, right? Or, you know, the German equivalent of that. And one of the things that was really fascinating to me was looking at the costumes of the other characters, because again, this is made in 1922. And that's not that long after people stopped dressing that way. And so Certain things, and it's meant to be like mid 19th century, not like right at the end of the 19th century. So certain things about the costumes weren't quite right. Yeah, like, like the Ellen, girl's the wife. corset situation is kind of weird around the boobs. Yeah, her her bodice is not good. And then there's like a secondary female character who has like one or maybe two scenes who's wearing a dress that's basically like underwear. And like her hair is not correct at all. But the dress that the main woman wears for the most part it's like the quality of the fabric is correct as opposed to most of what you get now and like the way it's sewn it just feels like it's hanging on her in a more correct way and she has these ringlets on the side of her head that i'm not an expert on the history of hair and like but it's just not a i mean she looks like very beautiful she's beautiful face but that type of hairdo like people now would be like well that's not fun yeah so we're not gonna do (laughs) that it's like sort of all these tubes yeah, and that what like pe- people did wear their hair in ringlets like that, whether or not it was exactly that sort of complete style, and um, like his out Hutter's outfits also just like feel very substantial just looking at them, and that also in terms of like this like weird time travel thing, it felt so much more in touch in a literal way with this period that then is kind of being invaded by this 
modern but also ancient freak, right? And then that is part of what's making everyone kind of lose their minds. And then the connection to the plague then, I think maybe we could talk about that before we get into the sex stuff, is both modern and ancient, right? Because the Spanish flu has just happened, but then that also evokes the Black Death, which is from centuries before. I mean, one of my absolute favorite shots from this movie is there's this amazing scene where kind of after Count Orlok has settled in this sleepy German town, you just see this shot looking down this very kind of beautiful old medieval probably street and you just see all of these coffins being carried down the street one by one because all the people who have been killed by Orlok and the plague that he's brought in with all of his plague rats and it's like oh it's it's great it's a really effective shot and uh yeah like you said like the Spanish flu had just happened I mean it's very interesting to kind of look at the different ways that this has been interpreted the classic Dracula interpretations the big two are fear of the other loads of sort of racialized terror about Eastern European interlopers and also just like sex. It's like, oh no, this man's gonna like penetrate your wife. Um, (laughs) But like, because this film was mostly destroyed very soon after it was released, it didn't kind of have that level of scholarship pointed at it in mainstream pop culture in the 20s. And people had to wait until like post-World War II, like 20 years later before it was analyzed much. So by that point, later German scholars in the 1940s were looking at this and like some of the prevailing theories from like an academic book I was reading were vampirism as a metaphor for hyperinflation after World War I, expressionism as a kind of symbol of people's desire to escape reality, Hutter as a metaphorical World War I veteran who's sent off and has a traumatic experience and his wife has to hold down the fort back home. And then obviously there's also this very kind of popular anti-Semitic interpretation of the film which was very prevalent like when the movie came out and that's a complicated one because I definitely don't think that that was Murnau's intention the people who made this film like the cast is full of Jewish actors and communists as was much of the, the silent film industry but at the same time when you have this story that's about this like dangerous outsider who's sucking people's blood and comes along with a bunch of rats that's loads of kind of offensive anti-semitic imagery that comes along with other, you know, blood libel stories of that type, right? And when I was kind of looking into this, there's this article from the Museum of the Jewish People, and it kind of talks about when this film came out, one of its biggest fans was Julius Stryker, who was the editor of the Nazi paper Der Sturmer in the 30s. And like, when this film first came out in the 20s, he was completely obsessed with Nosferatu and watched it multiple times. And it was a really direct influence on him later on publishing cartoons that were sort of connecting Jewish people with vampiric imagery. So there's these kind of tie-ins that happened because like that was something that was floating around in the cultural zeitgeist. And it ties in with all of these overarching ideas about horror that's about the fear of the other. But I do not think it was the intention of the filmmakers, particularly the screenwriter Heinrich Gallen, who was Jewish and is best known for making the Gollum trilogy, 1915 to 1920, like this very famous trio of Jewish-German movies. So yeah, complicated backstory there. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I think I did have some thought that floated through my mind while watching that like, Orlok, you've got a big hooked nose. It doesn't look great. It doesn't feel like they're trying to create like an anti-Semitic caricature, as you say. But it's interesting to think about like when you take a source text that is fundamentally 
racist, which Dracula, delightful though it is in many ways, like it is a product of imperial anxiety. Which is interesting because Bram Stoker was Irish, so there's like a lot going on there. And who knows what was going on in his mind in terms of like critiquing that versus like embodying it. But there clearly is an anxiety, which in the book I was mentioning, The Beatle, that was popular at the same time, like the introduction of the edition I was reading was talking about how like these two books that are kind of doing similar things in terms of like this being from the East basically coming and like preying upon women is the plot of both books. Which is literally still... Just completely present in British politics, 100% now, in terms of conservative responses to Eastern European immigration. So, you know, nothing ever changes. Right. And so there's a lot about Dracula that, like, people have loved since it was published that is not because of that subtext or because of the, like, paranoid subtext about sexuality, which obviously is all tied up with the otherness like you can't disentangle this sexuality and the sort of cultural stuff i think and like it seems as though the people who made this movie were motivated by other things but then how do you take that stuff out of a text when that's what was fundamentally the cause of it right like it it's really difficult i think probably coppola is the one who's done the best job because he just changed the story so much in bram stoker's dracula by turning it into a love story but yeah, it's it's still present in this. I think what the movie does successfully is turn the female character into an interesting force in the movie, which certainly subsequent Dracula adaptations do not do, at least in like the immediate decades after this. The, th- you know, early 30s Hollywood one is just like... <laughs> And Herzog's adaptation of this is, I remember, as I said, being quite sexist. And, you know, spoiler alert, the woman dies at the end of this movie, which isn't great. But I think the way the film handles sexuality and, like, her response to that is really fascinating. Um, Especially for something made at that time. And that was kind of what, to me, makes it, like, a masterpiece as opposed to just, like, a really good and interesting film. Yeah. From a long time I mean, ago. it is a bit of a kind of different ending, like I said, because it's, you know, she sees all these coffins being carried down the street and realizes that the solution is to sacrifice her literal and metaphorical purity in order to get rid of this threat and then saves everyone. But she's also been turned on by yes. him. <laughs> There's a lot of writhing, which I feel is a really central and essential (laughs) element of the genre. Yeah, so it's totally ambivalent about what she's doing. I mean, obviously, the, like, literal text is like, hooray, she saved everyone by sacrificing herself. But what the movie does with that, as is so often the case with these older films and, you know, books and everything, is so much more interesting because you don't really know whether she's made this decision out of total selflessness or whether she kind of wants to do this because she has this sexual desire, which is more what it feels like to me. Or, I mean, it's clearly a combination of the two in some way. And that's such a taboo. Like, whatever he represents, which the movie doesn't obviously explicate because that's not how art works, for her to be making that decision feels really transgressive particularly because he is so fucking ugly and gross like it would be i mean and they change that in later movies right like it's way less 
weird if he's really hot. Yeah. I mean, that is really the foundation of Dracula's success as a stage show, because there were actually like a number of vampire stage plays floating around throughout this period because it was such a hot topic. But Dracula became this sex symbol, and so did Bela Lugosi when he was playing Dracula on stage prior to doing the film. And I mean, part of the reason why that film happened in the first place is because Florence Stoker wanted to actually make money from her intellectual property because she'd been trying to stamp out all of these remaining prints of Nosferatu and they were still floating around. So she managed to get this film made and then, you know, it became this newly iconic image of what Dracula was like. But although I absolutely love the Bela Lugosi Dracula, that very quickly kind of became bodlerized and the classic depiction of Dracula in Hollywood was just like really corny for years and years and years and years. And you should definitely listen to our episode about Bram Stoker's Dracula, an amazing movie. But one of the things I think I'm pretty sure I will have said in that episode is that I love the way Coppola sort of looks back to the way Dracula is described in the book and has a lot of fun with that in a really grotesque and erotic way because you've got Gary Oldman who has an incredible capacity for creepiness and was apparently a real creep on set as well with Winona Ryder, to no one's surprise. But like, you've got this character who can be sort of glamorous and hypnotic and appealing, but he is also introduced as this like decaying corpse-like ancient guy. And when you read the book, you know, he is introduced as having this like long white moustache because he's meant to look like an aging Vlad Dracul, you know. And he's wrinkled and sort of desiccated. And then once he starts to drink people's blood, he gets his youth and virility back. And Nosferatu's Count Orlok is kind of in that mold because he looks like a corpse and like a bat. (laughs) There's nothing sexy about that. And that's what makes the erotic elements more fun. Because if a vampire just looks like Robert Pattinson, there's no spice to it. You know, it's not spicy. It's for normies. (laughs) I mean, we also should mention to, like, clarify what we mean about, like, all the sex stuff in this movie is that he also, as in the book, comes on to Hooter at the beginning, (laughs) too, before he drinks his blood. um, And Hooter's just like, what the fuck is happening? And then there's a cut. Talk about, like, the film being really intentional about its images. There's just a cut to him just, like, passed out in this chair. Languishing. Right. And, like, we have no idea what's happened in the interim and like they clearly want you to be in assuming things yes yeah. i mean dracula is a homoerotic book and director fw yeah. murnau was almost certainly queer so voila yeah it, it i mean i think every single shot in the movie is intentional in that way even if like the cuts aren't all doing quite as much as that one which is again back to his like mastery of the camera i think it said gab did all the research for this episode because she is a scholar of dracula and also i was not feeling well but i was just looking at the wikipedia and i as i mentioned at the top he was just an obsessive planner and like it's storyboarded yeah. everything so carefully i, I which saw some you can story tell. somewhere about him directing the performances with a metronome <laughs> yes yeah i saw that too which again is like testament to or like reflective of the idea of them kind of existing in these paintings. But I don't think they feel like, as as you said, they're clearly like silent film performances, but they don't feel so stiff that they're being, that they're like metronomic. But that no. I guess was part of his method, which is really fascinating. Yeah. And um, also some of the 
more static shots like it functions well as a horror story because there's this sense of being trapped and you're being forced to watch something or Count Orlock is in this enclosed space and watching the camera and that sort of thing which is just really effective like this movie is not scary by modern standards at all I don't think the jump scare had been invented yet I don't know when that came in (laughs) but it's definitely still atmospheric and the more you kind of think about the way it's working on a metaphorical level and the way that Count Orlock is just like gross and creepy the better it works yeah I totally agree and I think the ending is like incredibly effective yeah when he's sucking her blood and then dies it's pretty great one thing I'd love to know is like after this movie came out obviously most of the copies were destroyed as we said and it's sort of copies were sort of floating around and were then reassembled in later decades but in the mid-20s Murnau moved to Hollywood and started making films in America before he died and I'm sure that he must have encountered people who watched like bastardized versions of this film and I would love to know what he thought because I think in like 1929 or 30 there was a version that kind of came out in the US at a few theatres which was like tons of the film was not the original film people had like refilmed scenes with a new fake Count Orlock and they'd the music was all different because most of the music for this film was lost I think it was like about two-thirds of it were kept and then like the versions that we saw will have had music that was kind of composed by musicologists to sort of sew it together but there was like basically an ersatz version that got re-released in the late 20s that was like it sounds terrible like I read a review of it in some paper from 1929 and I was like this doesn't sound good and I was like what did Murnau think like was he offended like I'd love to know but I don't know if that's information that's available (laughs) one hopes that he had a good sense of humor about it and I would bet there's a big fat biography of him somewhere that has the answer to your question. I mean, it's the kind of thing where there's like so many fucking sources to talk to and they're all just like gossipy theater people. And he did make 20 <laughs> movies. So I don't know how precious he was about them. Like we all think of him as the Nosferatu guy, but among film buffs, there's like three or four other films that he's extremely well known for. And he also just made dozens of others. So, you know. I mean, you say we, I think of him as the Sunrise yeah. guy personally, because that's the movie I it's was a very shown when American I was perspective years old. of you. But yeah, I think people kind of agree that that's his best film. Have you seen that? I've not seen it. I've seen Faust, which I loved, and I think I've seen like a couple of others. Gavia, you gotta see I Sunrise. Know. You gotta I know. see it. My flatmates and I had a joke amongst us about sunrise (laughs) when we were sophomores in college like this is the level of nerds we were but it is truly it is so sublime one day we'll talk about that one on the podcast it's so good and i'd barely seen any silent films if any when i saw that i must have seen i think i'd seen a couple chaplains and probably that was it and my mind was just like whoa (laughs) what is this like the stuff he does with the camera in that movie is like beyond belief So let's talk for a little bit about Shadow of the Vampire. Yeah. Which you are a big fan of. And I thought was silly and quite bad. (laughs) (laughs) I think this film is delightful. I definitely don't think it's like artistically impressive, but I find it both very entertaining and an excellent sort of broad satire of the film industry and sort of destructive onset behavior in a way that I feel would probably hit it off with a lot of modern audiences if it was available anywhere which is it is not so um, (laughs) if anyone did watch that film with us for this episode thank you it's a 
horror historical film by the director E. Elias Marriage. And it stars John Malkovich as the director of Nosferatu and Willem Dafoe as the guy who played Nosferatu. And the idea is that um, F.W. Murnau is this sort of very control freak artiste. And you have this supporting cast, including a wonderful role, in my opinion, for Eddie Azard, who is playing the lead actor of the movie and is giving this appropriately sort of over-the-top performance as him. But um, Willem Dafoe is a vampire. And so this director has created a situation where there is literally a vampire on set who is acting very unsettlingly. Willem Dafoe, extremely entertaining as always. And it's this kind of toxic workplace environment where the filmmaker is like convinced that the best way to make this movie work is the most extreme possible manner of having a quote-unquote method actor. Like, obviously, we we don't need to go into the details of what method actually means, but this is a guy who's like, I'm going to fully act like a real vampire and kill and eat people on set. And John Malkovich is like, anything for the art. I'm definitely going to make this happen. I was just like, I love it. Great, great concept. (laughs) I mean, I think, well... My view of the film was that it was one of those movies where, like, one person is giving a completely, like, balls-to-the-wall performance, and the rest of the movie is not good, but is sort of there to, like, prop up this, like, one astonishing thing that's happening, which is, by which I mean Willem Dafoe, of course, and he managed somehow to get nominated for an Academy Award for this movie, which is, like, so stunning. He won Los Angeles Film Critics Award for Sporting Actor. And he completely deserves it because he is, like, you can just feel how much he is enjoying himself doing this. There are a lot of bad accents in this movie, (laughs) like, truly in and out, like, no one sounds remotely consistent. I don't know if his accent is good, in quotes. He sounds the same the whole time, and he sounds nothing like himself at all. And he is just making these faces that are just, like... I don't even know how to describe what's happening. It is so delightful. Well, Willem Dafoe is blessed with one of nature's great faces. And he's fantastic at playing, you know, a gremlin, as he so famously has done on several occasions. Yes. And the makeup on him is astounding. This should also have been nominated for that. It made me feel like all of the bad makeup jobs in Hollywood productions, like, get your act together. Because I'm sure the budget for this movie was not very big. And the makeup, obviously, they're only really worrying about one person in terms of the, like, really involved prosthetic makeup. But, like, he looks astonishing. So that part I totally enjoyed. I could not really get on board with any of the rest of the movie because it's so completely... I understand that it's just making everything up. And I tried to intellectually be like, it's fine. They're just making everything up. But I could not do it. Like, (laughs) my brain couldn't do it. You see, for me, it just felt so clearly different from reality. Like, they haven't really bothered to... They've hired Udo Kier, who's obviously a legendary German actor, to play Alban Grau, which is a fun role. But, like, they're not really going into that backstory because the whole thing is kind of hinging more upon this as like a satire of the film industry, I think, rather than being like, here's anything remotely resembling the backstory of Nosferatu. Yes, but it's a satire of the film industry in a way that didn't exist in 1922, right? And so I was like, well, they're talking about all this like method stuff and like, okay, so Stanislavski was alive at this time, but like the idea of like the method actor like terrorizing sets, when they first started talking about that, I was like, oh, that's quite clever and funny. 
But as it progressed, I was like, but that wasn't... I mean, I'm sure there were actors who were a nightmare on the set of various movies in the early 20s, but this cultural idea was like not a thing well, Morgan, at all. That's why this, this film was being made in 2000 and not in 1921. Well... Right, but then what's the point? Like, I just don't understand the point. And the whole thing also hinges on them shooting at night, which none of Nosferatu <laughs> shot at night. Like, that's not how it worked. The whole thing shot in the day. So like, I just was like, no. I think that <laughs> the complaints you have and the things that I enjoy about this film are perhaps the perfect review that we can give of this movie because the audience will be very clearly separated into the two categories of people who are going to complain about it shooting at night versus the people who will enjoy, <laughs> like me. Well... I have one more substantial complaint that is not to do with historical inaccuracies, mm. which is that like in... So the whole thing, as you say, is about the sort of like monstrousness of this actor slash vampire and then also the Murnau character for enabling him, which I also kind of felt like... I know anyone watching this is going to be like, obviously this is fake, but I was sort of like <laughs> slander upon F.W. Murnau. Like, what? But um, the sort of climax of the movie spoiler but like if you've seen Nosferatu and you watch the movie like none of this is going to be that surprising to you is that the Orlok character is just killing people the promise that Murnau has made to him to get him to star in the movie is that he's going to give him Greta and the climax of the film is the last scene of the movie oh last scene of Nosferatu where she's like sacrificing herself and it's the only thing they change from Nosferatu they really meticulously recreate it which is fun but in this they're like you're gonna have a wooden stake and you're gonna stab him which is not a part of Nosferatu and then they just let him kill her and these men are just like watching as Murnau is like rolling his camera and that actress also earlier in the film has a scene where her boobs are fully out for in like a gratuitous way and I just did not think, and the, the film at the end when she dies is clearly trying to make a point that like, oh, these men are bad, but she's barely in the movie. And basically her role is to be naked for a little bit and then to get murdered in a really gross way while no one does anything to stop it. And I did not think that the film had the like moral constitution to cope with what it was doing there at all. So that was my other complaint. <laughs> well, Celebi. <laughs> it's irksome, right? Because I think Nosferatu is actually really interested in that female character and does something interesting with her. And that movie's from a hundred years ago. And this movie from 2000, I think, is quite sexist. And it's like, well, what are we doing here? Like, what the fuck is the point of this? I am perennially baffled by the Dracula adaptations that we continue to have because... I will keep watching those Dracula adaptations. There's dozens of them that I've not seen yet, but one through line between, I would say, a solid 95% of them is that they're misogynist. And it was extremely frustrating to me, what was it, like two years ago, when the BBC like poured a ton of money into that Dracula adaptation made by Stephen Moffat, very sexist, and like had no understanding of the main themes of the book and I was just like this is such a kind of depressing indictment of the British TV industry that they would prefer to have like this huge piece of IP and this big name writer and then agree to like film a script that is that bad and has that little interest in the female characters and the cast was really good <laughs> like they had a really great cast and they were just like we will squander it 
Yeah, that was going to be Clay's Bang's big movie yeah. after he was the hottest man alive in the square. I was very disappointed. I mean, it also it's such a classic situation of like Hollywood slash like the British film and TV industry not grasping the target audience of these things, yeah. right? Like, who loves Dracula? Women. Like, that's, that's the broad answer. Of course, many people love Dracula, but like, lots of women love Dracula because it's horny. Like, that, yeah. that's the answer. And they just don't get it. There is another Dracula film coming starring, do you recall? No. Nicholas Cage. Oh god, fuck yeah, of course. No, it's the one it's the one where it's Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage. And Nicholas Holt, yes. it's like it's about Renfield, the sidekick guy who's like the obsessive yes. little servant of Dracula. And so you've got Nicholas Cage playing Dracula. A great casting, because Nicholas Holt is like he loves to play a weird little guy. Oh, he's so good at playing a weird little guy. I am looking forward to that. So Nicolas Cage produced Shadow of the Vampire. He was initially supposed to star as Count Orlock and then like pulled out once Willem Dafoe had expressed interest. Yeah, I think. that would not have been a good movie with Nicolas Cage. And I say this as someone who no. has watched Vampire's Kiss, where Nicolas Cage plays a vampire. Great movie. Perfect role for specifically Nicolas Cage. Yeah. So clearly he's into Dracula, which makes a lot of sense. And he will be in this movie. With Nicholas Holt, Aquafina, Shoreg, Dashlu, and many others. I don't recognize any of the other names, so I think they're probably taking a very loose approach. Well, it's set in the, the present day, if I recall correctly. Okay. I will watch this. We will podcast about it. That will be fun. It's an endlessly renewable resource for Hollywood. If you haven't seen Nosferatu, you should definitely watch it. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it wherever. The restoration that Kino Lorber has is really superb and has the correct music. So I would recommend that. But uh, yeah, just like a wonderful, wonderful movie. So next week we are watching a somewhat adjacent style of film, I suppose you could say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hotly anticipated by both of us and I'm sure by many of you. It is Sebastian Stan's next movie, although that is very unfair to his co-star, who is the protagonist of the film, Daisy Edgar Jones. It's described on Wikipedia as a comedy thriller, but I would say it definitely has horror elements. It's directed by Mimi Cave. And the protagonist is a young woman who is struggling with the horrors of the current modern day dating scene. And then meets this slightly old ga- older guy played by Sebastian Stan, who seems like potentially a better prospect. But then unnerving things begin to happen in their relationship in what seems to be a fun and potentially gruesome way. This movie is definitely getting a positive reception from its kind of early screenings and we look forward to watching it. Yeah, I mean, Sebastian Stan in particular has gotten really positive reviews and I thought he was great in Pam and Tommy, which I didn't otherwise care for that much. Lily James also very good, but uh, I'm very happy for him for escaping from Marvel and doing good work elsewhere. So I think that will be interesting to talk about his sort of career trajectory and then also what the movie is doing. I think we both know the premise, but we're not going (laughs) to say anymore. So yeah, that will be next week. It's available on Hulu in the United States. And we will also have a bonus episode on Patreon, uh, which we teased last week as well, on the pirate the MGM musical from the 1940s starring Gene Kelly and Judy Garland, which, um, as we told you then, is like a weird, horny, very musical. fun. 
Yeah, about a woman who just wants to be kidnapped by a pirate. So check out that as well. You can find that and all of our other bonus episodes at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on The Daily Dot, where I recently reviewed The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson. And you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverInvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverInvestedPodcast, and our website is OverInvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.